0: So tonight, the Kansas City Chiefs are going to be pitted against the San Francisco 49ers, just in case you were unaware that that is happening. And at the end of that game, you may know how these end, someone is going to win, and they're going to be given a trophy. Go Chiefs. I I have to admit that, not because I'm a Chiefs fan, but I typically am an AFC guy. My team, the Steelers, don't anybody throw anything, they're in the AFC. I typically go with the AFC whenever we get to the Super Bowl. Now, the only time I don't pull for the AFC is when the AFC champion is the New England Patriots. And, but it, news that I just heard, all right, you sh- you'll be happy to know, the trophy this year looks quite a bit different since the Patriots are not going to be winning it. The football on top is fully inflated. So... <laughs> what? I'm just telling you what I heard on the news. That's not very nice, Pastor. No, it's not, but it's very funny. I like it. You ever wonder why grown men beat each other up? I mean, beat the ever-loving crap out of each other, risk concussions and lifelong knee injuries for a trophy? Why would they do something like that? It's because a trophy says something about you, doesn't it? In fact, when they get that that Vince Lombardi trophy tonight, uh, there's a few dudes in front of me that are probably going to be man, that looked nice on my mantle. It's like we all are after that thing. But here's the thing. If you want a really impressive trophy case, it's not the Vince Lombardi trophy that you want to look at. In fact, it, it pains me to admit this, but if you want to see a room that screams champions you have to make a trip to Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Oh, be quiet. (laughs) And when you walk in the trophy room in the University of Alabama's football program, right at the centerpiece of that, what you're gonna find is the last college football championship trophy they won in 2018. In 2019, they got beat by the Clemson Tigers. I'm just throwing that in for free. But it's it's an it's an incredible, incredible piece of art. It's two and a half feet tall. If you start at the base, there's this small little oblong-shaped football that that creates the base of the trophy, and then as it goes up, it tapers out until you get a flat, full-size football on the top. And the combination of bronze, steel, and 24-karat gold that adorns this thing brings its total weight to 35 feet. And here's the thing, if you're in that room in Tuscaloosa, that's not all that's in there. There are 15 more of those outlining that room, each one with a crimson-tied helmet next to it with a number embedded in that helmet indicating the year in which 15 additional national college football championships were won. You're in that room about seven seconds when you realize... I'm in the presence of one of the most phenomenal football programs of history. That's what trophies do. You walk in that room, and without any players or any other human being in there with you, you leave thinking, you know, I may have been alone, but I was in the presence of champions. It's amazing what a trophy can communicate. And if you want to know why grown men put their health and lives at risk to win one, it is at least partially, brothers and sisters, because we are created in the image of God who loves to collect his own. And that's what we're going to talk about today. In Galatians, we just started this series about three weeks ago. We've been talking about how to live the grace-driven life. Paul is uh, communicating this truth to the church at Galatia. They've had some people come in called the Judaizers who are trying to re-enslave them to religious works that are not only unnecessary for eternal life, but will lead them to lead an enslaved life that neither Paul nor the Lord intends for them to live. And so... Over the next several months, we're asking, what does this life look like? How do we live it? How do we get liberated from older ideas about things that we have to do? How do we get over our performance anxiety when it comes to being in the presence of God? And today, one of the things we're going to see in this last, these last few verses of chapter 1 is the key indicator of a grace-driven life. And it comes out in this question. When people are in your presence, my presence... Do they sense that they're in the presence of one of God's trophies? Do they sense that they're in the presence of the greatness of God? How many of you have ever been noticed because of some big change in your life? You got did something radically new with your hair? Or if you're a guy, it was a 10 year it's been 10 years since your last high school reunion, you don't have any hair anymore. <laughs> Something's radical, right? People notice. You you lost a lot of weight. You, you weren't doing very well, but you, you've been nursed back to health and now you look good and there have been people that haven't seen you healthy in a while. There's all kinds of things we can do. Or you, you decide to start working out and all of a sudden your pecs and your, your, your biceps, they start showing up again. And people take notice, don't they? They notice that, that change that's there because it's obvious. And what's true in scenarios like that was true of Paul, which is why we have this particular section of Galatians. In this entire part of the letter, more than half of the verses we're going to look at are dedicated explicitly to his personal story of conversion and life change. Starting with his former life, moving to his encounter with Jesus on the Damascus Road, moving very quickly from there to his travel to Arabia, then to Jerusalem, and then finally back to Syria, and along the way, encountering those that he used to hunt down and jail and kill people who would have naturally and reflexively been afraid of him, and having them walk away convinced we're now in the presence of the greatness of God. Something happened to him that was legitimate. And so we have all this detail for this reason. The Galatians find themselves in this hard place here of having to choose. Paul recognizes, we talked about this last week, he he does it humbly, but he does it very directly. You guys are going to have to choose between me and the Judaizers. It's either them or it's me, because this isn't just about some difference of opinion about who you voted for, or whether or not you can have alcohol, or or how you feel about predestination, or some crazy thing like that. This is an issue where the gospel is at stake, and one of us is preaching a false one, and you're going to have to choose. And it's likely that the Judaizers have tried to make the same argument. They're trying to convince the Galatians, Paul is an illegitimate preacher. Why would you listen to him? He's a rogue minister. And so Paul's answer to that perceived challenge is this. You need to look at my life. Look at my changed life. And it is the change that they see. When this man, once named Saul of Tarsus, this man that every time the early Christians heard his name, they hid the children now they both see and believe and are absolutely convinced that a different man stands before them. A man that has been transformed into a trophy of the grace of God. And they walk away saying, we're not in the, only in the presence of a changed man, we are in the presence of the grace of a great God. That alone demonstrates the legitimacy both of Paul's faith and also of his leadership at the church at Galatia and so for now through the end of May really or almost to the end up to about Mother's Day Paul's going to teach us through this letter how do you live that kind of life how do you get at that and today through his own testimony one of the things we're going to get to see is this grace grace driven life consists of living as a trophy of God's greatness and grace how do you do that don't you want that I want that. I don't want people to be, I don't want them to have to be impressed with me to, be, to enjoy being around me. To enjoy being around me is to leave my presence thinking more about my creator and redeemer than you do about me. How do you live that way? You need a number of things. And the first is this, you and I, we need a healthy view of our past if we're going to live this way. And we see that unpacked for us in the life of Paul, beginning in verse 13, for you have heard of my former life in Judaism how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. So apparently the Galatians were already familiar with the details of Paul's story and probably because he used that story and initially sharing the gospel with them. And so, so he just sort of summarizes here what we have here is a Cliff's notes version of of Paul's life before he encountered Jesus summarized succinctly as my experience in Judaism my Former life in Judaism and then from the rest of Scripture particularly the book of Acts You see what that looks like if you don't like the Galatians already kind of know what that consists of This man was the ringleader in the murder of the deacon Stephen in Acts 8 1 2 verses later It's recorded in Acts 8 3 that he wreaked havoc in the church He broke up families by putting believers in prison unjustly even just before his own conversion as early as late as Acts 9 chapter 1 We read that he is breathing threats and murder against these early christians eventually so bent was he on destroying the early church that he vowed to kill them and we see that even in retrospect as luke refers back to that earlier testimony of paul's in acts chapter 22 and so here's the here's the thing paul this isn't the only place he talks about this he mentions it in other places first corinthians 15 philippians 3 first timothy chapter one and if you read with any degree of care at any point where Paul talks about his former life, you come to one obvious conclusion. He is about as transparent as a person can be about his past. He is just completely open and honest. He's not proud of it. He's not ambivalent about it. He's like, oh yeah, well God forgave me for that. and He's not that way about it. But here's the other thing. He's also not enslaved by it. He's not. There's a fable about a man looking at his friend who looked really depressed. And he said, why why do you look depressed? And his friend said, well, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about my future. He said, well, you don't even know what your future contains. What is it when you think about your future that makes you so depressed? And he said, my past. The world's taught us to think that way, hasn't it? Yeah. In fact, behavioral psychology actually teaches us that the best predictor of what you're going to do tomorrow is what you did yesterday. And generally speaking, that's true. That's true. Apart from the grace of God, that's true. But this is one of the things about the gospel of Christ that confounds the behavioral sciences, is that God can transform. Your past does not have to determine your future. You don't have to live enslaved in that way. One of the things that causes Paul to be shocked that the Galatians doubt him and the gospel message that he brought them was the change in his own life. He's like, haven't you seen this? It's the gospel that changes everything. Look at the change, he says, in my life. How could you doubt the truth and the power of the message I brought you in favor of the cheap imitation that the Judaizers are presenting you when you see who I was? You see how your past can can not only help inform your future in a more redemptive way, but also the people around you? See, there's not a person in front of me who doesn't have a past. Your pastor's got one. I, I, sometimes I take a lot of joy in trying to encourage some of our teens when they're struggling academically, for example. When I tell them that it, it, it was a, you know, 100 years ago, but there was a time when your pastor graduated by the skin of his teeth with a 1.9 GPA and an 870 SAT score. And the reason is not because I wasn't smart enough to do it. The reason is because I didn't care I literally have a high school diploma because I wore a football jersey. That's why I graduated. Longer story later. (laughs) See, the thing is, that's who I was. I'm not proud of that, but I can talk about it openly and freely, not because of who I was, because of who I am now, and because of who God has made me to be. Listen, you need to hear this. Don't be ambivalent about your past. But don't be enslaved to it. And here's how you can refuse to be enslaved to your past. When you realize that Jesus bled for it and has absorbed God's wrath for it. Jesus has already suffered for your past. Why would you continue to suffer? He's already done this in your place for your sins. I've got a good friend of mine who uh, we've been friends since really almost elementary school. And I'll never forget the the day. It it, It scared me to death. I was a freshman in college. And I was home and my my mother's wall phone rang. Anybody remember what those are? <laughs> Hangs on a wall, there's a cord on it about 45 miles long, so she could walk with it into the kitchen to stir the green beans or walk with it back into the living room in order to vacuum the, the, the whatever, you know. I picked it up and it was my buddy. And we'd gotten into a lot of trouble together. I'm not gonna bore you. Well. It might not bore you, but it might disappoint you to tell you about some of the things we got in together. I will never forget picking up the phone and saying hello. And I heard his voice. He said, Joel, and you know how when you really know somebody well, you can tell even when they speak your name, this is not going to be a good phone call? And I'm like, what's wrong, man? And he said, my girlfriend's pregnant. Now, when you're 19 years old, that statement scares the mess out of you, even if you're not the father. It just does. I remember several months later, little Stephen was born. I remember a couple of months after that, little Stephen was the, the unwilling ring bearer as I stood as my buddy's best man as he married this girl. And I remember the next eight years after that, we would sometimes, Amy and I got together not long after that, and then we were married, and we would get calls from his wife beside herself please pray for him. I'm doing everything I can to try to hold this together. What's happened this time? There's no milk in the fridge. There's no food in the cabinets. He got paid today. He came home with nothing. He gambled it all away. Stop. And so we prayed and we prayed and we prayed. Eight years into that marriage, the Lord profoundly saved my buddy. Men, can you testify to the fact that sometimes our heads are so hard that God just has to break our heads to get to us? This was Paul on the Damascus Road, too. It's okay. It happened to Paul to admit that sometimes, particularly to a man, God just has to to beat you down. Let me tell you something. That conversion was powerful because my friend, truly came to know the lord you know what's happened since then he not only became the godly husband and father that god created him to be he has pastored two churches he has planted four more he's now in our home state leading a a congregation that has already begun to grow that man has been a personal lifeline for your pastor on a number of occasions i thank god for his friendship and by the way little stephen Little Stephen is is licensed to practice law in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. He works for the state's attorney general there. And he and his new bride just gave my best friend in the world their first grandson. That, brothers and sisters, is what the gospel will do. It will take everything that's in your past and it will change it into something good. That is exactly what it will do. It's It's what happened for Paul. And if you ask him, listen, if you ask my buddy about his past, he'll tell you. And he won't be ambivalent about it he won't be proud of it but he also will never ever again be trapped by it and you don't have to be either you don't have to be trapped by it. you don't have to be like this like paul you can be that person who's open and honest and transparent he let me tell you about my past because god offers you a life that is driven by his grace that allows you that healthy understanding and the reason for that is really powerful as well. It's because that that right understanding, that healthy understanding of your past, it tees you up to be able to display something else about God. And that is his greatness. The great view of God. Paul will continue in verse 15. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, and I'm going to stop here for a minute and kind of camp on these two verses for a moment. One of the mind-blowing things about Paul is how God used him even before his conversion, which oftentimes, as we look back on our own testimony, we see that in us as well. Jesus, for example, in in the first chapter of Acts, looks at his disciples, and it wasn't so much a command as it was a declaration of prophetic utterance. This is what's going to happen. You're going to be my witnesses. You're going to start in Jerusalem, then it's going to expand to Judea and Samaria, then it's going to go to the uttermost parts of the earth. Well, by by the time we get eight chapters in, guess where God's people are? They're still in Jerusalem. They haven't moved. Like a lot of people I've pastored, they just want to stay right there. Don't want to take any risks, don't want to do that. And so God says, All right. As he looks down from his sovereign position on the throne, he sees Saul of Tarsus breathing threats and murder. I can imagine him keeping his own counsel and saying, among the fellowship of the Trinity and with the angelic host, that, that guy, I'm going I'm to change him and I'm going to use him for powerful things. But before I do that, i got one thing I need to use him for. I need to send him into Jerusalem to persecute my people so they'll go where I told them to go. And then once that happens, then Paul takes a trip of his own and gets converted and Paul recognizes that in these two verses. This looks. This was God's sovereign plan. Did you know the Bible teaches that? If you belong to Jesus, that, that was initiated. It wasn't the moment you believed. It happened before the foundation of the world. You were set apart and you were called. And there are five things about Paul's life that he expresses here that reveal the greatness of his God. The first is that God did it all. He said, it pleased God to reveal his son to me. I am where I am only because of him. He's basically... Echoing what Jonah would write from the belly of the fish, salvation is of the Lord. God did it all. Number two, God did it by his grace. Because for me to live a grace-driven life is to know what grace is. You know what grace is? It's unmerited favor. It means by definition, I don't deserve it. The most absurd sentence on the planet is for someone to say, I deserve some grace. You don't deserve any grace, and neither do I. Paul says, God called me not because of something I did to deserve it, not because of something I did because I'm so wonderful. If you're listening to somebody who tells you that, oh, Jesus died for you because you're so awesome. No, you're not. You stink. I love you, but you stink, and so do I. God doesn't save you because you're awesome. How ridiculous is that? But here's the other side of that. Two sides, really. The first is this. If you're so awesome, then why was that bloody God-awful mess on top of Golgotha's Hill necessary? There's nothing awesome about that. Here's the other side of it. If God saved you because you're awesome, you know what you got to keep doing for the rest of your life? Being awesome. That's called a conditional relationship. You have any idea how enslaving that is? to say that this is what i got to do, i got to keep white-knuckling it, i got to keep controlling the situation, i got to keep doing that, you're living as a slave to a false religion. Paul says you've got to learn how to be driven by grace and say, you know what, I have no idea why God did this, but he did, and the result of that is I can sing with our artists who led us in that beautiful song just a few moments ago, all my life you have been so, so good. God did it all. God did it by his grace. Then he, he keeps going. Like, the, the way he did this is through Christ. Grace comes through the revelation of the Son. The cornerstone of all Christian faith is that God, who was not required to even let us know he existed, has revealed himself to all of humanity in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That Judaizing religion in Galatia was trying to take them back to outward rituals and religious practices. Christ Paul says, produces an inward transformation. No longer do you need some external law. We'll get to the relationship with law and gospel in just a moment. God's going to change you starting on the inside. You won't even be able to help yourself. You will obey. You will adore. You will worship. You will be that kind of person. Number four, God did it for the sake of others. Notice Paul says he did it that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Now that's a shocking statement. You think about who this man was. Not just a terrorist, but a racist. How how do do you get a member of the KKK to join a church with a black senior pastor? How does that happen? Answer, that don't happen. That don't happen unless God through the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit, based on the death and the resurrection of Jesus, burns the hell out of the KKK guy. And then it happens. Then it happens. So here's a guy who not only, prior to his conversion, thought him theologically superior, he thought himself genetically superior. He would have never decided for himself to make these despised Gentiles not just one of the objects of his mission, the primary object of his mission. God saved Paul so that Paul could save others. And by the way, that's exactly why he saved you. That's exactly why he did it. This same Paul who would have said, it is only us. It is only ethnicity. It is only circumcision. It is kill everybody and anybody who disagrees with us is the same Paul who in first Corinthians nine post-conversion says, I'm now becoming all to all people. Who are those people? I'm going to become like them. Not so that I can share in their sin, but so that I can identify with them just as Jesus came into my world and identified with me. All things, to all people, by all means, I want to see some of them know what I know. I want to see some of them live the way I get to live now. God did this for the sake of other people. Number five, God did it for his glory. This is what makes us fast forward to the end of this section. Look at verse 24. And they glorified God because of me. This is the ultimate aim of your life and mine. Our Presbyterian brothers and sisters in their great Westminster Confession tell us that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's why you were created. That's why I was created. Glory, that word, refers to weight. There's a reason The National Championship Trophy weighs 35 pounds and not 35 ounces because weight matters. Importance, honor of the one who created us. This is what you were created for. You were not created to have more likes on Instagram than your neighbor. You were not created to have a nice house with a white picket fence and 2.4 kids and a dog and a cat. You were not created to go on that dream vacation. You were not created to get that next raise. You were not created to climb up that next rung on the ladder. None of those things in and of themselves are inherently evil until they become ultimate in your life, at which point they are evil. They are penultimate to the ultimate thing, and the ultimate thing is that every resource I have, all of my money, all of my body and soul, the blood that pumps through my veins at this moment, everything I have, my wife, my children, my vehicles, everything needs to be aimed in one direction, and that is to ascribe weight and glory to the one who created me. That's why you exist, and that's why some of you are miserable, because you have not tapped into that yet. You keep living for this piddly crap. They glorified God because of me. This is who God created me to be. Anybody truly living a grace-driven life, the grace and the presence of God's greatness, you ever been in the presence of somebody like that? It just just drips off of them. And and you walk away. I mean, I've been in the presence of people before, and I've walked away going, I'm not as holy as them. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about that. Okay, my wife and I, some twenty years ago, got to sit and hear Elizabeth Elliot preach the gospel, and then we got a few moments with her personally. And I walked out of that chapel service like I'm going to hell. Like, right? She didn't mean to project that at all, but you know, you just—I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about somebody who, with a healthy view of their past, they're going to tell you who they were. There's a book that we, that I read this past summer. It was on our recommended reading list for the fall. And it's love letters that were written between Jim and Elizabeth Elliot. And as I read that book, I thought, oh, now I'm learning some things about Elizabeth. She wasn't perfect either. See, so when, when, you, when you get a view of somebody's whole life, but the greatness of God just drips off of them, you don't walk away thinking they're better than you. You walk away understanding how great your God is. And you want to feel and sense that greatness, because does your life so permeate, is it so permeated by God's grace that your own failures are completely overwhelmed in a way that makes other people walk away from you and say, what a great God, what a great God, you need a healthy view of your past. So it tees you up to have the right view of the greatness of God. Here's the last thing you need. This is how trophies of God's grace live. People look at their life and they go, miracle. No way to explain that life outside of the miraculous hand of God. Look at verse 17. I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days but I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And then there's this weird little parenthetical notation. We'll come back to this in a moment. He says, in, in what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. We're like, what are you on the stand? What is that? We'll come back to that in a moment. Then I went down to the regions of Syria and Sicilia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They were only hearing it said... He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. Now, you, you look at this long list of verses at the end of this chapter, and, and it, just a quick glance would go, Why did Paul put his travel itinerary in the middle of this letter? What is that doing there? But the significance of each of these locations is huge for us. Starting with Arabia, Paul, after his conversion, goes to Arabia. He gives himself to study and prayer and meditation. This is a guy who in the 21st century would have had a terminal degree in Hebrew studies. But when he comes to Christ, he realizes, I know nothing. I don't know anything. But I am going to relearn. And I'm going to reorient everything I think I know around the person and the work of Jesus. From there he goes to Damascus. And let me tell you why that's a shock to the system of these Galatians who are receiving this letter because the people who were going to receive him at Damascus were expecting to receive their hero who would help them purge that part of Syria of the Christians. But now that he has become a Christian, those people waiting on him at Damascus are in all likelihood waiting with loaded weapons. He's now become one of them. This is a dangerous place, therefore. These people are going to be out for blood. And if you look at the the end of Acts chapter 9, you see that's exactly what happened. And so when the Galatians just read that one word in this travel itinerary, they're thinking, is he insane? Why would he go there? Then comes three years later, Jerusalem. But even the apostles are suspicious of him at this point. Three years in, he's preaching the gospel. They're still suspicious. You're like, why are they suspicious? Because if Osama bin Laden walked in here and told you that he was a brother in Christ, you might keep one eye open. And I would too, right? This racist terrorist comes in and says he's one of us. They're still suspicious of him. They're afraid he's a radical Jewish spy. So finally he goes home to Tarsus because his life is in danger at Jerusalem, ever bit as much as it was in Damascus. So, so here's what you've got. This isn't just a travel itinerary. This timeline is a witness to the legitimacy of Paul's faith and ministry. He's telling the Galatians this because he's got accusers at Galatia saying he's rogue. He's not even an original apostle. He's corrupted the faith. Why would you listen to him? Well, verse 23 would answer that. We will listen to him because he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith. He once tried to destroy. And in the middle of all this comes that parenthetical notation. What I'm writing to you, before God, I do not lie. Don't read that too quickly. For one thing, if you take the testimony of Paul and you combine it with that of Luke in the book of Acts, it's it's pretty easy to, to ascertain that what Paul is describing here in Galatians is accurate. He's not lying. So when Paul says this, as a parenthetical note, this should be read less like, please believe me, and more like in the middle of him telling this story, kind of pausing for a moment, looking at his Galatian brothers and sisters and saying, y'all, you can't make this up. How we, who would create a story like this? This really happened. Everything in this timeline in Paul's life testifies to the grace of God guiding him every step of the way and his ultimate acceptance by the church when they finally said, okay, I guess he's not Osama anymore, bring him in, is the result of those early Christians examining his life in all of those different places and coming to one undeniable conclusion. His life is a miracle of God. Paul's life is a miracle. He said, if you're going to live a life driven by grace, It cannot rely primarily on your eloquence, your winsomeness, your skill, your intelligence, your ability to succeed. It's when people look at the whole course of your life, all of it, including your past, the good, the bad, the ugly, and they say, God is at work there. God is at work there. It's when things happen in you and through you and around you that can only be attributed to the work of your great God. And when when those things converge, healthy view of the past, great view of your God, your own life as miraculous, you're living at that moment in the freedom that God intends. And that is powerful. It's not just for you, but for everybody you encounter because they receive a message. They look at you and they're not even really looking at you. They don't even have to be impressed with you. But they see a trophy. And they cannot deny somebody had to win that. Somebody had to be a champion. Otherwise, that thing wouldn't be there. It would not be there. Paul's favorite description, the most frequent one he uses of himself, is the phrase doulos. Doulos of Christ. You, you, more sanitized English versions will say servant of Christ. But if it's saying what the New Testament really means to convey, it says slave of Christ. That's hard for us because we're living in a different place, different time, on a different continent. And so when we hear that word slave reflexively, it kind of triggers this horrifying chapter in our nation's history that was characterized by man-stealing and racial animosity and the most wicked kind of human rights violations. The Romans, though, when they heard this word in a first century context, they, they thought of this word differently. For them, when they heard the word doulos, it wasn't ascribed to man-stealing, although certainly there was a share of that in the Roman world as well. Their first thought was to indentured servanthood, indentured servanthood. My friend Brandon's down here on the front row, and if, if, if I just, you know, if, if let's say scenario that Brandon's got a lot of wealth, not only take care of his family, take care of some other families, and I need some wealth I got nothing in the fridge, I got nothing in the cabinet, I got three kids to feed. And so I go over to Brandon and I say, hey, have you you got something I can do? And Brandon agrees that he's going to provide me the means to be able to keep a roof over my family's head, put food in the fridge and the cabinets, and do what I need to do. And in exchange for that, I will agree to indenture myself to him, which is another way of saying I'm going to work in exchange for that. In, In other words... It's what we call a job. That's what it is. But occasionally, an indentured servant would finish his term of commitment, and his experience with that particular master would be so great that he would ask the master to indenture him for the rest of his life. That involved a ceremony in which a symbolic hammer and nail brought by the servant was handed to the master. And the master would then take that nail and not symbolically but literally while his servant voluntarily put his head up against the wall and stretched out one of his earlobes, allow the master to drive a nail to make a hole. So if you're walking down the streets, first century Rome, and you see somebody with a pierced ear, you know the story behind that, right? Like some of you are wearing Chiefs jerseys today. There's a story behind that. Some of you are wearing 49ers jerseys today. There's a story behind that. You see that Pierce steer, and the story is he went to work for somebody, and that master was so incredibly benevolent and kind and good and fair that he wants to be tied to that man for the rest of his life. When people saw Pierce steer, they didn't know what the slave's story was. But they automatically assumed, assumed the following. His master is wealthy and generous and loving and kind and safe. The response of the public? What a wonderful master he must have. Like going into a trophy room. And the trophy's ornate enough. You don't walk out of the room talking about the medals in the trophy. You walk out of the room talking about the greatness of those who won the trophy. How about you? Is your life a window into that? That's what Paul, through his own testimony, is calling us to, to give people a window into the greatness of God. When you're, are, you, are you able to be open about your past? Is the miraculous nature of your present life obvious? When you tell your story and when you live your life out in front of other people, do people say, what a wonderful master she has. What a wonderful master. When they step into your presence, do they see a trophy indicative of a God who is champion of the universe? My my prayer is that that be true of all of us, that our lives, our testimony, everything about us, would be aimed at that one goal and that by God's grace, the grace we're going to learn about over the next three months, we would would learn that grace empowers us to live in that way that people cannot help but walk away from our presence with one thing on their mind. What a great God they serve. Father in heaven, thank you for your greatness. Thank you, Lord. And we don't, need to have performance anxiety in your presence. Thank you, Lord, that your love is truly unconditional. There's nothing about our awesomeness or our greatness that commended your love to us. You love unconditionally. And we thank you that because of that alone, we can know that you are infinitely, inherently, consistently good. Lord, may we trust that. And Lord, over these next few moments, as we respond to your word, I pray that people would be released from the chains of their past. Father, that they would see all of that absorbed in the death of Christ. That they would be able, empowered by your Holy Spirit, to live as Paul did. And Lord, may may enough of those people do that here that this entity called Covenant Church, this gathering of your people collectively will be known as those people. Father, may this tri-state area and the world and anyone else that comes into contact with us and our work, may they walk away saying, what God is doing among those people is miraculous. And may they not speak about us. May they simply say, what a great God those people in Shepherdstown serve. And may it be due At least in part to the movement you create among us today I pray these things in Jesus name amen hi everybody pastor Joel here and I am so glad you stopped by I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God and if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort God is not afraid of those questions and neither are we Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already received from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.